I'd invite you to turn to the 20th chapter of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 20. I'll read verses 1 through 16. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 20 verses 1 through 16. While the kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard, and when he had agreed with the laborers for a denarius for the day, he sent them into his vineyard. And he went out about the third hour and saw others standing idle in the marketplace, and to those he said, You too go into the vineyard, and whatever is right I will give you. And so they went. Again he went out about the sixth hour and the ninth hour and did the same thing. And about the eleventh hour he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here all idle all day long? They said to him, Because no one hired us. He said to them, You too go into the vineyard. And when evening had come, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last group to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each one received a denarius. And when those hired first came, they thought that they would receive more. And they also received, each one, a denarius. And when they received it, they grumbled at the landowner, saying, these last men have worked only one hour. You made them equal to us who have borne the burden and the scorching heat of the day. But he answered and said to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what is yours and go your way. But I wish to give to the last man the same as to you. Is it not lawful for me to do what I wish with what is my own? Or is your eye envious because I'm generous? Thus the last shall be first, and the first last. The people in Jesus' day would have been familiar with this setting. When the, ripes, when the grapes began to ripen, the harvest had to come off fast, sometime within two or three days. And so the landowners would go down to the market square and hire workmen for the vineyard. They'd get there about daybreak, about six o'clock in the morning, and there'd be people waiting there for jobs, and they would agree on a wage, and they'd send them into the vineyard. At 9 o'clock and at noon and at 3 o'clock, they would come back and hire additional workers and send them. And occasionally, they'd come at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, an hour before quitting time. They'd find people there waiting to work. We're not sure if they'd been there all day or not, but the landowner, the vineyard owner says, why have you men been standing idle all day? And they say, well, we didn't have any opportunity. Nobody hired us. So he'd send them into the vineyard. 
An hour later, he would get his managers to go out to the men and bring them in, gather them in, and pay them. The last hired would be paid first. And he gave them the amount that he agreed on to pay those who were hired first. And so those who were hired first must have been pretty excited about that, man. They thought, man, if he's paying them what he agreed to pay us and they just worked an hour, what are we going to get? They were pretty excited about it. But when he paid them, much to their chagrin and dismay, he paid them the same amount, the amount agreed on, the amount he paid those who had worked just an hour. And so they grumbled, as probably you and I would do. It's not fair. You mean you're going to make these people equal to us and we've borne the burden and the heat of the day? And the landowner asked this question, Are you envious of my generosity? Helmut Tillich, he calls this a coded telegram understood only if you can break the code. I think there are some codes here that we can break. First of all, it has to do with the boundaries of this story, this parable. The boundaries of the parable are the last verse of chapter 19 and the 16th verse of chapter 20. In the last, ver last verse of chapter 19 he said, But many who are first will be last, and the last shall be first. And then he repeats that in verse 16. So in this parenthesis, as it were, he gathers up the ideas of this story. There is also an occasion for this story. The occasion of the story comes out of verse 27. Then, Jesus, then Peter answered and said to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. What then will there be for us? What are we going to get out of it? So that the occasion of the story is this question that Peter asked. I mean, it needed an answer. More importantly, the attitude behind the question needed to be dealt with. There is one other facet of the code that has to do with the, with the object of the story. The object of the story is not to teach salvation or getting into the kingdom. It does teach that and that's peripheral. But the object of this story is a call to service, not a call to salvation. There is not only a code here, but there's a question here. The question is, with whom do you most identify in this story? There are some of you who may identify with the last hired. You may feel like that you really haven't had an opportunity in life like others have had. You've just kind of been the stepchild of life's circumstances. I mean, you may feel like the little boy who was always chosen last for every game. You know how that works, don't you? He's kind of standing there and everybody else is chosen. And finally the choosers say, well, there's Sam. You can have Sam. You know, he's always last chosen. There's some of you who may feel this morning like you have to struggle to survive while others breeze through life easily. You're childless while others have children they don't want. You're jobless. And there are people who have less talents than you have to offer, who, got, who have great jobs with great pay. You may feel like you've been cheated in life because you just have one talent, and that talent is unnecessary for most folks, uh, never used and never appreciated. Most likely these 
who are hired last represent these Gentile Christians, latecomers to the kingdom. There are some of you who may identify this morning with the first hired. These, no doubt, are the Pharisees who resent the attention that Jesus gives these Gentiles, claiming for themselves years of obedience and fidelity to God. And what they're saying is this, how dare you offer this kingdom to these Gentiles. We've been God's people, God's children since Abraham. How dare you make these pagans, these Gentiles, equal with us? For centuries we have been serving God faithfully. How dare you give them our privileges? Unfortunately, I think I feel like this emotion sometimes, these Emotions that I sense in this second group a lot of times. Resentment. I mean, after all, don't I deserve some special consideration? Because I've been serving God all my life. I can't remember when I didn't serve the Lord. I grew up in a Christian home in a Baptist church. Don't I deserve some special consideration for that? I mean, don't I deserve a little bit more than the next guy down the road? Don't I deserve to be first in line? This kind of religious leveling is hard to take. I mean, it just doesn't seem fair that there'd be people who don't serve God, who prosper, And I don't get any special consideration. I mean, don't I deserve more than that? I mean, if anybody is healed, shouldn't it be the people of God? If anybody succeeds in this world, shouldn't it be those who are faithful to God who succeed? If there's anybody in this life that prospers, shouldn't it be the people of God who prosper? Why, the first psalm talks about that, that if a person is faithful to God, he prospers in everything he does. I mean, where's the the fairness in all of this? And so Jesus told the story of the prodigal son. You know him. He went off to the far country and wasted his life away and, and threw his life away. Finally, one day he came to himself and came home. There's another man in that parable we often neglect. It's the prodigal's brother. When he heard all this noise going on, this celebration, he went inside the house to see his brother had come back, and his father was throwing a party for him. So he went into his father and he said, Now wait a minute, where's my party? I've been faithful to you. I stayed here and served you all this time. Where's my celebration? Nobody has thrown a party for me. You got a best prime rib on the table and a banquet for my brother, a coat for his dirty back, sandals for his feet, ring on his finger. Look at my hand. There's no ring on my hand. Why is the fa- what's the fairness here? I, I have to admit this morning that sometimes I feel the same kind of feeling as that, don't you? And a little bit of envy and a little bit of jealousy comes in. I was reading this over the other day, just kind of refreshing my mind on this parable, and I looked at that question again, the most astounding question you'll find anywhere in the Gospel of Matthew. God God speaks through this man Jesus and says and asks, Are you envious of my generosity? Well, I guess I am envious of his generosity. 
I look around at people who succeed in life and prosper in life and are healthy. I guess I am a little bit envious of that, aren't you? I mean, you read about it every day in the professional world of athletics. One man signs a contract for a million dollars. The guy plays next to him in the lineup wants two million. Ryan Sandberg plays for the Cubs. He makes seven million dollars a year playing baseball. When he signed that contract for seven million dollars a year, 600 other baseball players wanted raises and salaries, just like all of us. I mean, we want to be recognized for our achievements. We want uh, to be recognized for our successes and we find ourselves envious of someone who makes more money and receives more recognition, don't we? I know some of you are so jealous of people who succeed and so am I. A pastor one day decided he would teach us in his children's sermon like we used to do here. He decided he would teach a little lesson on inequality so he said, all you kids from, ages one, from grades 1 through 3 that are blonde-headed, get up and come down for the children's sermon. All you blondes, grades 1 through 3. So they all got up, the blondes got up, and he came down, he motioned for them to sit over there. He had a big sack of M&M candies. He began to sprinkle some in their little hands that were extended. He'd sprinkle a little M&M candy in their hands. After he'd done that, he said, Now all of you who are not blonde, the rest of you kids, grades one through three, come down here. So they got up, and he motioned them to sit over here. After a little bit, he said, Now do you kids see something wrong that I did there? You see something wrong in that? rejoice and weep with those who weep? I'm here to tell you it's a whole lot easier to weep with the sad than it is to rejoice with the glad. And some of you this morning may be able to identify, I'm not sure about this, but some of you may be able to identify with the landowner in this story. Now make no mistake about it, he represents God here. And what this parable is about is to show us what God is like. God is the landowner. And so he sang with this word picture, I want to describe for you what God is like. These are the characteristics of God. First, generosity. Now wait just a minute. Don't you get hung up on this parable that you can't understand and the unfairness it seems to espouse. Don't miss the fact that the emphasis of this parable is on the generosity of the Father, of the landowner, of the generosity of God. In her marvelous book, Pilgrim at Tinker Creek, Anne Dilliard begins one of her chapters with this wonderful little story. Listen to it. When I was six or seven years old, growing up in Pittsburgh, I used to take a precious penny of my own and hide it for someone else to find. It was a curious compulsion. Sadly, I've never been, a, I've never been seized by it since. <laughs> Too bad. For some reason, I always hid the penny along the same stretch of sidewalk up the street. I would cradle it at the roots of a sycamore, say, or in a hole left by a chipped-off piece of sidewalk. Then I'd take a piece of chalk 
And starting at either end of the block, draw huge arrows leading up to the penny from both directions. After I learned to write, I labeled the arrows, surprise ahead, or money this way. I was greatly excited during all this arrow drawing at the thought of the first lucky passerby who would receive, who would receive in this way, regardless of merit, a free gift from the universe. But I never looked, lurked about. I'd go straight home and not give the matter another thought until some months later I would be gripped again by the impulse to hide another penny. Isn't that just like God? I mean, isn't he always just hiding these surprises on the road? And then he takes arrows and draws arrows in the road and the sidewalk. And, and, and that's why he talks all the time in the Old Testament about what he did down in Egypt and what he did in the wilderness. He's always drawing these signs saying, look, I've got a surprise for you because he's such a generous and loving God. Never quits giving. True story. One Saturday morning I was standing out here in the Outside here fixing to get in my car, and old Hugh Fortenberry came over across the street. He likes to tell me jokes. So he was standing there, and we were talking and visiting, and some old guy came down the sidewalk. True story, a drunk, just an old drunk guy, shuffling down the sidewalk. And when he got up to us, he said, Can, I get a, can you give me a quarter so I can buy some coffee? I'm thinking, you're not going to buy that coffee with that quarter. I said, No, I don't have a quarter. I had my fingers crossed. And Fortenberry said, I don't, give, I don't give money away, he said. So the old guy looked at us, kind of disgusted. He was staggering on down the street. And there were some guys down here on the corner talking, visiting. So he staggered up to them, and we were watching him. And he engaged them in conversation, and they had about the same response as we did. So he turned around and headed back up toward us, and he got about 15 yards from us, and he stopped. And he looked down on the sidewalk. And there was some money laying there. <laughs> and, and you could see, you know, his eyes, his face lit up like the sun. And he leaned over and he picked up what looked like a quarter. And I swear, he looked down toward us. I could read his mind. He was saying, I don't need you guys. I'm, I'm getting it from heaven. And he held that quarter up. And he kind of looked up at heaven, you know, and just kind of stood there a minute and thinking to himself, man, Money's falling out of the sky here this morning. And then he put it in his pocket and headed off, shuffled off down the street. I'm here to tell you that God's always pouring out of heaven his blessing upon us. He's a generous God. Not only is there this generosity about him, but there is this unconditional love about him. The fact that he invited these men and, and paid them was not on the basis of their merit, but on the basis of His unconditional love. I mean, His love is broader than the measure of man's mind. Now, they didn't, they didn't like that too, too well, that God would include these people, but it's, that's just the way He is. He loves in spite of what we are or who we are. And when Jesus went back to Nazareth, he got up in the synagogue one day and he's talking, out, he's talking to the Jews, the Pharisees. He said, you know, there, were more than just, there was more than just one widow woman in Israel. But when Elijah the prophet 
instructed by God, went to a widow. He didn't go to the widows of Israel. He went down to Sidon and, and ministered in the city of Zarephath to a widow. And then he said, you know, there are lepers in Israel, all over Israel, but when Elisha the prophet went to a leper to heal him, he didn't go to a leper in Israel. He went down to he, he went down to Syria to Naaman the leper. You know what he was getting at, don't you? He was saying that God's love is extended not just to the Jews, but when they heard that, they were enraged and they tried to kill him. Didn't matter if he's from their hometown. And if you turn over to the book of Acts sometime, there's John, there is Paul arrested by the Romans, about to be persecuted. The Jews are there. He said, you can't persecute me. I'm a Roman citizen. And they backed off. And up stood Paul, and he began to speak, and he spoke to the Jews who were there in Hebrew, and they listened because he was speaking in their native tongue, and they were spellbound by a man speaking to them in Hebrew. But when he began to talk about the gospel extended to the Gentiles, they went crazy. They stripped off their clothes. They raged with their voices and threw dust in the air. It's not possible that God loves every man, is it? But the love of God is broader than the measure of man's mind, and the heart of the eternal is infinitely kind. I don't know whether you and I are ready for this or not, but God's love is not based on value, our value, our merit, our worth. There's not only a code and a question. Let me give you this and we're out of here. There are some conclusions. One conclusion is, is that God is sovereign. It's just right there in the text. You can't deny it. He said, don't I have a right to do whatever I want to with what is mine? And the sovereignty of God, by right of His sovereignty, He's pleased to do anything He wants to do. He has a right to do it. That means if God gives, so be it. If God takes away, blessed be the name of the Lord. It means that because God is sovereign, He has the right to do whatever He pleases that's in concert with his nature. The second conclusion is, is that we're judged on the basis of our opportunity. We're judged, are you listening? On the basis of our opportunities, the talents and opportunities that we have. And so Jesus told a parable about a man having five talents, one had two and one had one. And when the owner of those talents came back, he judged the men on the basis not of the bottom line of what they were able to produce, but on the basis of their fidelity, their faithfulness to the opportunity they had. That's why Jesus talked about the fact, unto whomsoever much is given, much shall be required, that when you and I stand at the bema, we're going to be judged on the basis of our opportunities. So you come to church. But what if you have an opportunity and an ability to do more than that? You're not going to get reward for coming to church. You're going to be judged on the basis of your opportunity and ability. I used to play a little golf, and one day I played a round of golf. Guy asked me, said, how'd you do? He said, I told him, I said, well, I shot par. Now, I was playing at the Diamond Oaks Country Club, and par there is 72. He said, wow, you've improved. He said, you shot 72? I said, no, I shot 105. He said, well, I thought you said you shot par. I said, well, I did. 
He said, well, par 72. I said, no, that's the pro's par. My par is 105. <laughs> it's like Willie Nelson. He's got his own golf course. One day a guy asked him what he shot on four. He said, I shot a 38. He said, a 38? He said, yeah, I bogeyed it. He said, bogey? He said, man, you mean par on that course, 37? He said, par is anything I want it to be. It's my, it's my course. Now, I don't, I, don't, I don't play against the pro's par. I don't play against your par. I'm not going to be judged on the basis of your ability and, my, and your opportunity. I'm going to be judged on the basis of my ability and my opportunity. If I was called into the service of God at the 11th hour, I'm going to be judged on the basis of what I did with that hour. If you are called into the kingdom and to the service of God on the basis of the 6 o'clock morning time, you're going to be judged with what you did with what you had. You know what I'm saying? There's a third conclusion here, and that has to do with the fact that these levels of coming in here have to do with the fact that it's, what's this? It's never too late for the kingdom. Never too late. Hallelujah. I used to, when I was a kid, I used to go to church and these guys would get up and talk about the fact that you could send away the day of grace and if you weren't careful, God is not going to see. Now it's on. See, it's just started. It's not kicked in. They'd send away the day of grace and God would, God would leave you. And, I, and they'd say, boy, you better hurry because if you don't come, you don't get into the kingdom, it may be too late. I don't believe that anymore. I, I'd hear that when I was 12 years old, think, well, it's probably 13 when it'd be too late, you know age 13. I'm here to tell you, as long as you have life, as long as you have consciousness, it's never too late. Never too late. I was preaching to a group of men in Columbus, Ohio a few years ago. This guy got up and gave a testimony. He was pastor of a church there. He said he went out to a nursing home, an old man there, about 90 years old. He said he began to talk to him about giving his heart to Christ. The man said, no, it's too late for me. It's just too late. He said, no, it's not. Oh, yeah, he said, it's too late. He said, oh, man, let me ask you this. If you had a son that walked away from you and for no reason at all except he just walked away and you hadn't heard from him in years, and you, he called you one day and said, Dad, I'm sorry for what I've done. I want to come home. Will you let me come home? The preacher said to the old man, would you let your son come home? He said, in a heartbeat, I'd let him come home. He said, well, that's the way it is. It's never too late for the kingdom. One concluding thought. It tells us here how we ought to feel about Him. It seems to me that a person ought to serve God out of the sheer love of serving God. And if there's a reward, great. If there's not, just as great. I want to serve God out of the sheer love of serving God. After the early service, a guy came up to me in my Sunday school class and he said, I, I thought about what you said this morning. He said, I remember over in eastern Oklahoma when I was a kid growing up, little old bitty church. He said, I look out there and it'd be about 12, these little old saintly ladies been serving God for all these years for no reason except just to serve God and loving it. I just want to serve God. And that, should that be our attitude? When we consider the sovereignty of God and the goodness of God and the, and the hidden surprises of God that we find every day, shouldn't that, shouldn't that be that, that we just, out of gratitude and love, say, what else can I do? I want to love Him and serve Him for the rest of my life. And though He slay me, yet will I serve Him. 
Shouldn't that be our attitude? Evidently not. A man by the name of York Park, what a name, knows the, knows the struggle of, of caring for a wife with Alzheimer's disease. She, she began to ask questions that were irrelevant and incoherent. That was the first sign of Alzheimer's. But her disease spread rapidly and her ability to communicate and her physical deterioration uh, speeded up was rapid until she became totally helpless. She went from 130 pounds to, 100 and, to 80 pounds and she never spoke again. Or maybe she'd say a word that didn't make a bit of sense. It was garbled and incoherent, but never sentences. And his daily routine was to feed her and bathe her and diaper her, to fix breakfast, fix meals, to, to, to clean house, to, to, to uh, clothe her and to dress her and undress her day after day after day. A, a labor of love. And one day, out of the blue, she spoke four words. Just as clear as a bell, she enunciated four words. Do you want me? And he cried, of course I want you, Flossie. And he hugged her and he, and he kissed her. And as quickly as she'd come out of that unconsciousness, she went back into it. Of course I want you, Flossie. Of course I want you. Did it seem biblical that a person would just want to serve God because he loves him? Let's pray together. Father, in all of these things that we don't understand, we understand enough to know what you're like and what we ought to be. And give us a desire, a heart that loves you and serves you, blesses you, exemplifies you, worships you. And regardless of what comes, good or ill, positive or negative, just to love you and serve you. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Now there may be some this morning who would identify with those who have not yet had the opportunity to be saved. You want to do it today. We're judged on the basis of the opportunity and you have an opportunity to give your heart and life to Jesus Christ right now. You don't need to wait another day. From here in the balcony or out here on this floor, there may be some of you who would say, you know, Pastor, I have never, ever, ever given my life to Christ to be saved. I've never prayed and invited Him into my heart. You can do that right now. We urge you to and beg you to. Maybe you need to come this morning to recommit your life to Christ. Maybe a little resentment, a little bitterness has come, creeped in. Or maybe you need to join our church. We want you to step right out if God leads you on the first word while we stand to sing. You come.
You understand the imitation? Bring your sin to Him and confess. Bring your sin to Him and confess. Oh God. I'm not sure that if I, that I made the invitation clear enough. So before we sing two stanzas of Just As I Am, let me reiterate the invitation to give your heart to Christ. Not asking about baptism or church membership, but have you ever at point of time placed your faith in Christ for your salvation? Count it on Him to be your Savior. Or maybe you need to come this morning and place your life in the fellowship of this church or to recommit your life to Christ. These are the invitations. Would you come this morning if God laid it on your heart? Just ask Him. You want me to go? And they'd be honest enough. Do what he wants you to do. While we sing, come right quickly. Step out and come.